Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 252 of Forgotten Classics, where we will once again go to the heart of Africa, or at least to the heart of the Yellow Devil's Nest in The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. First, though, usually I would give you a podcast highlight, but as has been my want lately, I've been listening to not that many podcasts, and the ones I have been listening to are old favorites that you're tired of hearing me talk about. So instead, what I'm going to tell you about is a movie that I watched, which is not related at all to a podcast that I can think of, but I just liked it. So I'm going to tell you about it. And it was Much Ado About Nothing, screenplay by William Shakespeare, adapted by Joss Whedon, meaning that he cut out some things, but he didn't change the language. And it was also, of course, directed by Joss Whedon. I myself, only watched this due to the fact that it was directed by Joss Whedon, because I always intellectually really like the idea of watching Shakespeare. But somehow when it gets down to it, I kind of always find something else to watch, something that seems a little more accessible. I had four movies on my list, four very different movies, and I went to the video store. Yes, As I've mentioned, old school, we have a video store, and it is amazing because it's run by a family, and they keep on top of all the foreign films and everything. I was walking around, and my gosh, all four of my movies had been checked out, every single copy of them, and that's so unusual because it's not like I was there late on Saturday or anything. However, that did send me over to the hits or new videos wall, and the only movie that I felt like I was interested in seeing was this one. I wasn't, you know, 100% on board, but I thought, well, we'll give it a try, and if we don't like it, we'll watch something that we already own, but it will be trying something new. I was stunned at how much I loved this movie. I mean, I loved it to the point of I put it on my Amazon wish list because my birthday's coming up. That's how much I loved it. It had a really fresh feel. The way the acting was done didn't make it feel as if the lines were all theatrical and old. And of course, a lot of that's the acting, but also the fact that this movie was done in 12 days. They had a break in between, I don't know, something when he was directing, when Joss Whedon was directing the Avengers, and his wife knew he'd always wanted to do this. He needed something to take his mind off the stress of the project, and she said, come on, you already have friends come over and do Shakespeare readings anyway. Get some of them and film it. And my goodness, they did it, and they did it at his house. And okay, number two, I want to live at his house. Oh my gosh, his wife designed it, I guess, and decorated it. I want to go to there. It's amazing. Also, not only was the acting really good, but the shot framing was great. There were a lot of shots in mirrors, a lot of shots through glass, a lot of shots of, um, you know, people listening in on other conversations that were really creatively done. The score was written by Joss Whedon, and he's got a brother who's very much into music. 
In fact, he plays the piano and his, I don't know, longtime companion slash wife slash girlfriend, somehow they're connected, sings during the movie. And they also play up the comic aspect really well. And oh my gosh, I'd forgotten what a great comic actor Nathan Fillion can be. I like Castle, but it's not what you call like the super best writing in the world, okay? This was, of course, Shakespeare, even one of his smaller comic plays. And oh, he did such a good job at being Dogsbury, the foolish head of security. Anyway, I loved it. Even if you don't really like Shakespeare, and this is where my husband finally admitted that to me. So yes, you can be married almost 30 years and find out something new. Turns out he's never really liked whenever we went to Shakespeare in the park or any of those things. He's just so nice and sweet. He never bothered bringing it up. Luckily for him, we don't do that a lot. But he said it was okay. And for him, that was high praise of Shakespeare, evidently, because watching this movie brought on a long list of all the things he hates about watching Shakespeare. But this movie, not really. So there you have it. It's not a podcast highlight. It's a movie highlight. Go look for the movie and let me know what you think if you try it. Now, back to the main event. The People of the Mist. When last we left our brave band, Leonard and Juana and Soa and Otter, oh, and the priest Francisco, they were all running away like crazy and fire had overtaken all the reeds at the Yellow Devil's Nest. Oh yeah, it's getting ready to get down to it. As if they hadn't enough already. There is more to it than just getting out of the adventure and coming out the other side so they can go on with what's happening. But I'm going to let that come to you as more of a surprise. And we'll talk about it afterward. Are you ready? Of course you are. Let's dive in. I'll meet you on the other side. The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 14 Vengeance Treachery! Treachery! screamed Pereira. The reeds are fired and that witch has betrayed us. Ha, 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 cried Otter again from his airy perch. Treachery, treachery, and what if the slaves are loosed? And what if the gates be barred? Hitherto the mob had been silent in their fear and wonder. There they stood closely packed, a hundred or more of them staring first at Otter, then at the advancing flames. Now they found a tongue. He is a fiend! Kill him! Storm the camp! To the gates! They yelled in this language and that. For many it was their last earthly cry, since at that moment a sheet of flame burst from the rampart of the camp, followed by the boom of the cannon, and six pounds of canister swept through the crowd. Right through them it swept, leaving a wide lane of dead and dying, and such a shriek went up to heaven as even that place of torment had never heard. Then they broke and fled this way and that, screaming curses as they went. When Leonard and the priest had rolled down the rising bridge, they found Juana standing safely by the guardhouse, surrounded by some of the settlement men. 
he cried. To the gun! Fire into them! I will follow you! Then it was he saw Otter left to his death and called out in fear. But Otter saved himself, as has been told, and climbed down the bridge safe and sound. Leaning on the dwarf and Francisco, Leonard, followed by Juana, staggered along the earthwork to the place where the gun was mounted. Before he had gone a step, he caught sight of the figure of Soa, outlined in bold relief against the background of the fire and surrounded by many of the freed settlement men. At the instant when he saw her, she was in the act of springing back from the breech of the gun, the lanyard in her hand. Then came the roar of the shot and the shriek of the smitten. "'Wow!' said Otter. "'The old woman has not been idle.' She is clever as a man, that one. Another minute, and they were helping to reload the piece. That is, except Soa, who was on her knees kissing Juana's hands. Come, stop that, said Leonard, sinking to the ground, for he was utterly exhausted. Those devils have gone for their arms. They will try to storm us presently. Is the shot home, Peter? Then run her out sharp, and you, Soa, screw her nose down. Next he bade the freed slaves arm themselves with stakes or anything that they could find, for of rifles they had but four, two of which they found in the guardhouse. Presently the slavers came on with a yell, carrying long planks, by the help of which they hoped to cross the dike. "'Look out,' said Leonard. "'They're going to open fire. Under the earthwork, every man of you!' And seizing Juana, who was standing near, he pulled her down into cover." It was not too soon, for next instant a storm of bullets swept over them. Most of the men had understood and taken shelter, but some were too slow or too stupid. Of these, one fell dead, and two more were hit. Soa and Peter alone took no heed, and yet they remained unhurt. There stood the woman, while the bullets whistled round her, laying the gun as coolly as though she had served in the royal artillery and with her was the head man, Peter. Peter was shot through the waistcloth, and a ball cut its way through Soa's grizzled hair, but neither of them seemed to notice these trifles. "'They are mad, boss,' cried Otter, who was watching the enemy over the top of the embankment. "'See, they are coming across the open.' Leonard looked. The dwarf was right. In their rage and hurry, the slavers, half-hidden in a cloud of smoke caused by their rapid firing, were advancing across the clear space instead of creeping along the edge of the dike. What was more, the necessity of carrying the planks caused them to pack in groups. Soa gave a final twist with her lever and waited, her hand on the lanyard. A bullet cut it in two, but without firing the gun, and she grasped the shortened cord. "'Now for it!' cried Leonard as the first party came into the line of fire. Soa sprang backwards with a yell. Again the piece thundered out and the canister screamed through the air. It tore along the advancing files. Then, striking the beaten earth, rebounded and caught those who were following with the ricochet and with awful effect. Whole groups were mowed down by this one discharge— the destruction being twice as large as that caused by the first shot, for at this greater range the canister found room to spread. Also the rebounding missiles flying hither and thither among the crowd did no little execution. Down went the men in heaps, and with them the planks they carried. They had no more wish to storm the slave camp. 
They had but one thought left, the thought of safety, and the survivors of them fled in all directions, yelling with fear and fury. Load up, load up, cried Otter, lifting the charge of powder which lay at hand. They will try to break open the gates and get out, then they will cut us off. As he spoke, they saw many men run from the auction shed to the water gate. But it could not be climbed. The key was gone, and the massive bolts and beams were not easy to break. So they brought hammers and a tree trunk, which had supported an angle of the shed, and battered at the gate. For two minutes or more it held. Then it began to give. Swift, swift, cried Otter again as he dragged at the cannon to turn it, or all will yet be lost. Hurry, no man's ox, black one, said Soa as she laid the gun with the help of Peter. A cry went up from the slavers. The gate was tottering, but it still held by the upper hinges. A few more blows and it must surely fall. But those blows were never struck. Again Soa sprang backwards, and the roar of the gun was answered by the screams of the slavers as the shrapnel plowed through them. Of those who were left, the most part fled for shelter to the auction hut and to the nest itself. Some ran across to the magazine, but appeared to be unable to enter it, for soon they were seen flying back again, while about a dozen of the boldest remained at the gate trying to complete its destruction. On these, Leonard and Otter opened fire with rifles, but it was not until three or four of them had fallen that the rest fled to join their companions beneath the shelter of the sheds. "'Oh, look, look!' said Juana, pointing to the east. It was indeed a spectacle never to be forgotten. The dense reeds, measuring twelve to fifteen feet in height, had been fired far to the east of the nest— and as the wind gathered to a gale and the fire got firmer hold, it rolled down upon the doomed place in billows and sheets, a sea of flame that sometimes sprouted high into the air and sometimes ran swiftly along the ground. The reeds crackled and roared like musketry as the fire ate into them, giving out thick volumes of smoke. At first, this smoke had passed above the spectators. Now it blew into their faces, half-choking them and blotting out the sky. And mixed up with it were showers of sparks and fragments of burning reeds brought forward on the wind. "'The houses and sheds will soon catch now,' said Leonard. "'Then they must take refuge in the open spaces where we can deal with them.' And he nodded toward the gun. As he spoke, tongues of flame darted into the air— first from the thatch of the shed, then from the roof of the nest. They were a fire. "'We must be careful, boss,' said Otter, "'or the slave shelters behind us will burn also, and all those in them.' "'Heavens, I never thought of that,' answered Leonard. "'Here, father, if you wish to do a good work, take some of these people and the buckets they use to water the slaves. Let three or four men get onto each roof and extinguish the sparks as they fall, while others bring them water from the moat.' The priest sprang up and set to the task at which he labored gallantly for two long hours. Had it not been for his efforts, the sheds and the slaves in them must have been burnt, for the sparks fell thick upon the dry thatch which caught again and again.' Now the sights and sounds grew more and more fearful. 
Maddened with fear, the remainder of the slave drivers and their servants rushed from the flaming buildings, striving to escape from the fire. Some flung themselves desperately into the aloes and prickly pears on the inner rampart, and climbing the palisade beyond, escaped into the marsh, while some collected on the open space, and at these the gun was fired from time to time when the smoke lifted. Others ran again to the dike of the slave camp, begging for mercy, there to be shot by Otter, who never wearied in his task of revenge. From behind them also rose the hideous cries of the slaves, who believed they were about to be burned alive and screamed as they dragged at their manacles. "'Oh, it is like hell,' said Juana to Leonard as she buried her face in the grass that she might see no more, and to escape the suffocating smoke. She was right. So the time went on. One by one the roofs of the various buildings fell in, and spouts of flame shot high into the air to descend about them in a rain of sparks. But at last the cries ceased, for even the slaves could yell no more. The fire grew less and less, and the wind dropped. Then the sun rose on the scene of death and desolation. The morass was swept bare to the depth of many yards, and the camp was a smoking ruin strewn with the dead. The walls of the nest still stood, however, and here and there a charred post remained. Everything else was gone, except the magazine which had escaped the flames, being built of brick and stone and roofed with tin. The adventurers looked around them in silence. Then they looked at each other. What a spectacle they presented in the clear light of the morning as they stood by the gun which had done them such a signal service. All were begrimed with smoke and powder, and their clothes were burnt by the falling sparks. Leonard's throat was a mass of bruises, his hands and face were bleeding, and he was so stiff and hurt that he could scarcely move. So his hair was singed and cut by the bullet which had shaved her head, the priest's robe hung in charred threads, and his hands were blistered with fire. Juana's broidered Arab dress, torn by the brutal hand of Pereira, scarcely retained a trace of white, and her long dark locks were tangled and powdered with bits of blackened reed. All were utterly exhausted, that is, all except Otter, who advanced to speak to Leonard, begrimed and stripped to the waist, but fierce and fresh as ever. "'What is it, Otter?' he asked. "'Will the boss let me take these men?' And he nodded toward the freed slaves who had belonged to the settlement. "'And hunt through the camp yonder. Many of the devils still live, and wounded snakes strike hardest.' "'As you like,' answered Leonard. "'Arm them with anything you can find, and search the camp thoroughly.' but be careful. In ten minutes, Otter was gone with the men. Then Leonard and the others fetched water and washed as best they might, the guardhouse being assigned to Juana and Soa, who made their toilet with the help of a comb they found in it. There also they discovered food, the rations of the sentry, of which they ate with such appetite as they might, and a plentiful supply of meal for the slaves. As they were finishing their breakfast, Otter returned unharmed, though of the men who accompanied him, five were missing. With him also were two of the four settlement men who had been sent to fire the reeds on the previous night. They were much exhausted, for their task had been no easy one, and fortunately for Leonard, it was only after a long delay that they succeeded in it. 
their two companions were dead. One had been taken by an alligator in the water, and the other had fallen into a deep hole in the morass, and striking his head against a log was drowned there. "'Is it finished?' said Leonard to the dwarf. Otter nodded. "'Some are dead and some are fled,' he answered. "'But from these last we have little to fear, for they believe an army has come against them. Still, that is not all to tell Bas. We have taken one of them alive. Come and look at him, Bas.' Leonard clambered up the steps of the encampment, followed by the others. On its further side stood the group of settlement men who had returned from scouring the camp, thin and haggard fellows, scarred by the slave irons, but very fierce-looking. In their midst, a white man crouched upon the ground, moaning with terror and misery. Just then he lifted his face. It was that of the yellow devil himself. There lay that aged iniquity, that hoary shame caught at last in his own snares. "'Where did you find him, Otter?' asked Leonard as they crossed the drawbridge. "'In the magazine, Bass, and your gold with him, also many rifles and much powder. He had locked himself up there, but he had not the heart to fire the powder and make an end.' Pereira did not see them as yet, but raising his head, he begged for water. "'Give him blood,' said one of the men sullenly. "'He has drunk it all his days. Let it be his last drink.' Leonard motioned to Francisco the priest to bring water. Then Pereira saw them and began to pray for mercy. "'Antonio Pereira,' Leonard answered sternly. "'Last night I and two companions, a woman and a black dwarf, set ourselves a task, to take this armed place of yours and rescue a white girl whom you had condemned to slavery. It did not seem possible that we should do it, but between sunset and sunrise we have done it. Who helped us then that we should have carried out this thing which was impossible? I will tell you, God helped us, as he helped this lady when she called on him. Cry to God, then, to do that which is still more impossible— to help you. From me you will have justice, and no more. At that moment Pereira ceased whining, and a flash of the old ferocity came into his eyes. Ah, my friend, he muttered, if I had but known. Then, turning to Juana, he said, My dove, have I not treated you kindly? Will you say no word for me now that my enemies prevail against me? By way of answer, Juana looked first at the human reptile before her, and next at the bosom of her torn dress, now roughly pinned up with the spikes of aloe leaves. Then she turned and went. "'Bas,' said Otter, "'may I speak?' "'Speak on,' Leonard answered. "'Hearken, yellow devil,' said the dwarf. Ten years ago you took me, and I lay in this camp a slave.' "'Yes, in yonder shed. Here are marks of irons, your own seal. "'Ah, you have forgotten the black dwarf, or perhaps you never noticed him. "'But he remembers. "'Who could forget you, yellow devil, that once had slept beneath your roof? "'I escaped, but as I fled I swore that, if I might, I would bring vengeance upon you.' 
The years went by and the hour has come at last. I led Bas to this place. I found you this morning and we are not parted yet, Yellow Devil. What did you boast last night? That you had sent 20,000 of us black people to slavery? Yes, and for every one you have sold, you have killed five old men white with years, women with child, little children at the breast. You have murdered them all. Ah, yes, I have seen you laugh and kill them before the eyes of their mothers as last night you killed the kitten. And now your time has come at last, yellow devil. And I, Otter the Dwarf, will give you to drink of your own medicine. What? You cry for mercy, you who never gave it even in a dream. I tell you, did my chief yonder bid me loose you, I would disobey him even to force. I, who would rather die than put aside his word on any other matter. Look now at these men. And he pointed to the settlement people who glared hungrily at the crouching wretch, much as hounds glare at a fox who is held aloft by the huntsman. Look at them. Do you see mercy in their eyes? They whose fathers and mothers you have murdered, whose little children you have stamped to death. Wow, yellow devil. The white men tell us of a hell, a place where dead people are tormented. We know nothing of that. It is for the white people, and they may keep it all to themselves. Now you are beginning to taste that hell of yours. Only beginning, yellow devil. Boss Leonard, I demand this man to be tried by us and dealt with according to our customs, for it is against us black folk that he has sinned most of all, and we ask his blood in payment for our blood. What? howled Pereira. Am I to be given over to these black dogs? Mercy, mercy, Francisco, plead for me. Shrive me. I know I killed your brother. I had to do it. Plead for me. And he rolled in the dust, trying to clasp Leonard's feet. I cannot shrive you, answered the priest, shuddering. But I will pray for you. Then the hungry-eyed natives pounced upon Pereira to drag him thence. But Leonard broke through them, saying, I will have none of your savage cruelties here. Let the man be shot, if you will, but no more. As it chanced, however, Pereira was not destined to die by the hand of man, for even as Otter gripped him, he turned livid, threw up his arms, groaned, and fell to the earth. Leonard looked at him. He was dead, dead through the fear of death, for terror had stopped the beating of his wicked heart. This shepherdess prophesied truly, cried Otter presently, for the heavens above have robbed us of our vengeance. Wow, it is hard, but at least this one shall work no more evil. Carry it away, said Leonard with a shudder, for the dead man's face was ghastly to behold. Then, turning to him, as if nothing had happened, he added, Otter, take these men and loose the rest of the slaves, then get the ammunition, rifles, and stores from the almshouse and bring them to the water gate. We must clear out of this place at once, or we shall have the escaped slavers and the crews of the Dows down upon us. 
Thus then did fate at last find out Antonio Pereira, the Yellow Devil. Chapter 15 Disillusion Once more it was morning, and the travelers were encamped by that reedy point where they had left the big boats which they cut loose from the island. From the earliest dawn, Leonard had been superintending the transport across the river of the hundreds of slaves whom they had released. There they were put on shore by the settlement men, provided with a store of meal, and left to shift for themselves, it being found utterly impossible to take them any further. "'There, they are gone,' said Otter, as the last boatload set out under the charge of Peter. "'Well, let them go, the silly sheep, so much the less trouble for us, who—' although we have a shepherdess, can scarcely lead so large a flock. Well, we have pulled the missy yonder out of the slave nest, and the yellow devil, ah, ha, ha, we have talked with him and all his crew. And now, are we to go on to win the gold, the real yellow devil, boss? I suppose so, Otter, answered Leonard. That is, if Soa keeps her word— but it isn't gold, it is rubies. At any rate, we must make for the settlement below Sina to take these men back and see if we can hear anything of Mavum. So, said Otter after a pause, well, the shepherdess, as the settlement people call her, will want to find her father. Say, Bas, she is proud, is she not? She looks over our heads and speaks little. Yes, Otter, she is proud. And she is beautiful. No woman was ever so beautiful. Yes, Otter, she is beautiful. And she is called Bass. She does not say thank you nicely for all that you have done. Perhaps she thinks it the more, Otter. Perhaps she thinks it the more. Still, she might say thank you to you, Bass. You who are her husband. What do you mean by that? I mean, Bas, that you bought her first, according to our customs, and married her afterwards, according to your own, and if that does not make her your wife, nothing can. Stop that fool's talk, said Leonard angrily, and never let me hear you repeat it. It was only a game that we played. <laughs> As the Bas desires, so be it. I do but speak from my heart when I say that she is your wife, and some might think that not so ill, for she is fair and clever. Will the boss rise and come to the river to bathe, that his soreness may leave him? Leonard took the suggestion and came back from his bath a new man, for rest and the cold water had acted on him like magic. He was still stiff, indeed, and remained lame in one leg for ten days or more, but with the exception of an aching of the throat where Xavier had gripped him, no other ill effects were left. Among the booty of the slave camp was a good supply of clothing, flannel shirts, corduroy suits, and hats. Casting aside the rags of the Portuguese uniform in which he had disguised himself, Leonard put on some of these articles and reappeared in the camp dressed like an ordinary English colonist, roughly indeed, but becomingly. Meanwhile, Juana had also been making her toilet, with the help of Soa, who took this opportunity to tell her mistress the history of her meeting with Leonard Outram. 
but either from design or because she forgot to do so, she did not at this time tell her about the agreement which had been entered into between them. As yet, Soa had never spoken fully to her mistress of her early life, or of the mysterious people of the mist from whom she sprang, though she had taught her the language they spoke. Perhaps for reasons of her own, she did not think this a favorable occasion on which to begin the story. When Soa had finished, Juana fell into a reverie. She remembered that she had expressed no gratitude to Mr. Outram for his heroic rescue of her, yet in her heart she was grateful enough. But for him she must now have been dead, and the world of light and love would have closed its gates upon her forever. Still, mixed up with her gratitude and earnest admiration of the deed of heroism which had been wrought for her sake, was another feeling a feeling of resentment and alarm. This stranger, this dark, keen-eyed, resolute man, had bought her as a slave. More, he had gone through a form of marriage with her that was not at all a form, for it had been solemnly celebrated by a priest, and there on her finger was the memorial of it. Of course it meant nothing, but the thought of it angered her and offended her pride. Like other women, Juana Rod had not come to twenty years of age without dreaming of love, and strange to say, her fancy had always chosen some such man as Leonard for the hero of the story. But that the hero should present himself in this ultra-heroic fashion, that he should buy her with gold, that he should go through a form of marriage with her within an hour of their first meeting, for these things she had not bargained. It was a fact— that marriage was an accomplished fact, although it might be null and void, and the female mind has a great respect for accomplished facts. To a woman of Juana's somewhat haughty nature, this was very galling. Already she felt it to be so, and as time went on, the chain of its remembrance irked her more and more, a circumstance which accounts for much of her subsequent conduct. Thinking such thoughts as these, Juana strolled back toward the camp along a little pathway in the reeds, and suddenly came face to face with Leonard. She was clad in a white Arab robe, part of the lute, which she had adapted cleverly to the purposes of a dress, fastening it round her slender waist with an embroidered scarf. She wore no hat, and her rich, dark hair was twisted into a great knot that shone in the sunlight. In her hand she held some crimson lilies which she had gathered that made a spot of color on the whiteness of her dress. The look of haunting terror was gone from her face, whose beauty had come back during her sleep. Her changing eyes shone beneath their dark lashes, and she moved with the grace of a fawn. Seen thus in that pure and pearly light against the green background of the feathered reeds, Nothing could have seemed more sweet and lovely than did this girl, this child of the forest and the river, who mingled in herself the different beauty of the Saxon and the Spaniard, ripened by the African sun and dignified by the long companionship of nature. There was a grace about her movements, a purity in her face, a mystery in her wide eyes and curved and smiling lips, such as Leonard had never seen before, and which overcame him utterly. Alas for the fickleness of the human heart! From that moment the adoration of his youth, the dream of his lonely years of wandering, Jane Beach, began to grow faint and fade away. But though this was so, as yet he did not admit it to himself. Indeed, he scarcely knew it. Juana looked up and saw him standing before her 
proud and handsome, an air of command upon his thoughtful face, deep-chested, bearded, vigorous, a man among men. She saw the admiration in his eyes and blushed, knowing that do what she could to prevent it, it was reflected in her own. She remembered all that this stranger had done for her, how he had risked his life a hundred times, how she would now have been dead and unlovely were it not for his intrepid deeds, and remembering, something stirred at her heart. Was it gratitude that moved her thus? She did not know, but whatever it was, she turned her head that he might not read it on her face. Another moment, and she was holding her hand out to him and smiling pleasantly. Good morning she said. I hope that you have slept well and that you have no bad news. I spent eight hours in a state of absolute stupor, he answered laughing, and there is no news at all to speak of, except that I have got rid of those slaves, poor creatures. I fancy that our friends, the slave dealers yonder, have had enough of our company, and are scarcely likely to follow us. Juana turned a shade paler and answered, I trust so. At least I have had enough of them. By the way, Mr. Outram, I I have to thank you for a great deal. Here her eyes caught the gleam of the gold circlet on the third finger of her left hand. This ring belongs to you. I will return it at once. Miss Rod, said Leonard gravely, we have passed through a very strange adventure together. Will you not keep the ring in remembrance of it? Her strong impulse was to refuse. While she wore this ring, the thought of that hateful scene, and still more the hateful mockery of marriage, would always be with her. And yet, as the words of prompt refusal were on her lips, a feeling, an instinct, almost a superstition, caused them to remain unspoken. "'You are very kind,' she said. "'But this is your signet ring. Is not that what you call it?' "'You cannot wish to give it to a chance acquaintance.' "'Yes, it is my signet ring, "'and if you will look at the crest and motto, "'you will see they are not inappropriate. "'And I do wish to give it even to a chance acquaintance, Miss Rod, "'if you will allow me no more intimate term.' "'I have looked at them,' she answered "'as she examined the ring curiously. "'It was of plain and somewhat massive gold "'and deeply cut into the shield-faced bezel.' was the Outram crest, a hand holding a drawn sword, beneath which the motto was engraved. What is the last word of the motto? she went on. It is so rubbed that I cannot read it. For home, honor, and heart, said Leonard. Juana blushed, though why the word heart should make her blush, she knew not. Well, I will wear the ring, if you wish it, Mr. Outram, in memory of our adventure. That is, "'Until you ask it back again,' she said confusedly, then added with a change of tone, "'There is one more detail of the adventure that I hope you will not allude to more than you can avoid, for the recollection of it is most painful to me, probably more so even than to you.' "'I suppose you mean the ceremony of marriage, Miss Rod?' "'I mean the wicked and abominable farce in which we were made to play a part,' she answered passionately. Most of the witnesses of that shameful scene are dead and cannot speak of it, and if you will keep your servant the dwarf silent, I will do the same by Father Francisco. Let it be forgotten by both of us. Certainly, Miss Rod, said Leonard. 
That is, if anything so strange can be forgotten. And now, will you come to breakfast? She bowed her head in assent and swept past him, the red lilies in her hand. I wonder what hold she has over that priest, thought Leonard to himself, that she talked of being able to keep him silent. By the way, I must find out whether we are to have the pleasure of his company. I would rather be without him myself. A strange girl. One can account for her beauty. She inherited that. But it is difficult to understand the manner. By rights, she should be a half-wild hoyden. But I never saw an English lady with more grace and dignity. <laughs> perhaps I have forgotten. It is so long since I associated with ladies. Or perhaps, like beauty, these are natural to her. After all, her father seems to have been a gentleman of birth, and people who live with nature may have every fault in the calendar, but they cannot be vulgar. That is the gift of civilization. When he reached the camp, Leonard found the priest talking confidentially to Juana. By the way, father, he said somewhat brusquely, as you see, I have got rid of these slaves. It was impossible to take them with us, and now they must shift for themselves. At any rate, they are better off than they were yonder. What are your plans? You have behaved well to us, but I cannot forget that we found you in bad company. Perhaps you wish to return to it? And in that case, your way lies eastward. And he nodded toward the nest. I do not wonder that you distrust me, senor, said Francisco, his pale and girlish face coloring as he spoke. For appearances are much against me, but I assure you that although I came into the company of Antonio Pereira by my own will, it was for no evil purpose. To be brief, senor, I had a brother who fled hither from Portugal because of a crime he had committed, and joined Pereira's band. With much toil I tracked him out, and was welcomed at the nest, because I am a priest who can comfort the sick and shrive the dying, for wickedness does not console men at the last, senor. I persuaded my brother to return with me, and we made a plan to escape. But Pereira's ears were long. We were betrayed, and my brother was hanged. They did not hang me because of my calling. Afterwards I was kept a prisoner, and forced to accompany the band in their expeditions. That is all the story. And now, with your permission, I will follow you, for I have no money, and nowhere else to go in this wilderness— though I fear that I am not strong enough to be of much service, and, being of another faith, you will scarcely need my ministrations. Very well, father, answered Leonard coldly, but please understand that we are still surrounded by many dangers, which any treachery may cause to overwhelm us. Therefore I warn you, that should I detect anything of the sort, my answer to it will be a quick one. I do not think that you need suspect the father, Mr. Outram, said Juana indignantly. I owe him a good deal. Had it not been for his kindness and counsel, I should not be alive today. I am most deeply grateful to him. If you vouch for him, Miss Rod, that is enough. You have had the advantage of a closer acquaintance than I can boast, Leonard answered gravely, mentally contrasting the difference of her manner in acknowledging the priest's services and his own. From that hour till a certain conversation opened his eyes, struggle as he would against it, Leonard disliked Francisco. He had a foolish British aversion to his class, and Juana's marked partiality toward this particular individual did not lessen it in this instance. 
Prejudice is a strong thing, and when it is heightened by suspicion and jealousy, especially jealousy of the unacknowledged kind, it becomes formidable, both to him who entertains it and to him against whom it is entertained. When their meal was done, they proceeded up the river in the boats which they had captured from the slavers, each boat being rowed by the best oarsmen among the settlement men. Including women and children, their party numbered some sixty souls. At evening they passed the island where they had left the company of slavers, but could see no sign of life upon it, and never learned whether the men perished or escaped. An hour later they were encamped upon the bank of the river, and it was while they were sitting round the fire at night that Juana told Leonard of the horrors which she had undergone during her dreadful sojourn with the slave caravan. She told him also how she had torn leaves from the Bible which she chanced to have with her and fixed them upon the reeds whenever she could find an opportunity of so doing, in the hope that they might guide her father should he return and attempt her rescue. "'It is all like a nightmare,' she said. "'And as for that hideous farce of marriage with which it ended, I can scarcely bear to think of it.' Then Francisco, who had been sitting silent, spoke for the first time. "'You speak, Signora,' he said in his subdued voice, "'of the hideous farce of marriage, "'and I suppose you mean the ceremony "'which I performed between you and the Signor Altram, "'being forced to the act by Pereira. "'It is my duty to tell you both that, "'however irregular this marriage may have been, "'I do not believe it to be a farce. "'I believe that you are lawfully man and wife until death shall part you, unless indeed the Pope should annul the union, as he alone can do. Nonsense, nonsense, broke in Leonard. You forget that there was no consent, that we are of another religion, and that the form was necessary to our plot. The Church knows nothing of the reasons which lead to the undertaking of wedlock, Francisco answered mildly. They are various, and many of them would not bear investigation. But you were married without any open protest on your part, on Portuguese territory according to Portuguese custom, and by a duly qualified priest. The fact that you are of the Protestant religion and were united by the Catholic ritual does not matter at all. For the purposes of the ceremony you accepted that ritual, as is customary when a Protestant marries a Catholic. It is disagreeable for me to have to tell you this, but the truth remains. I believe that you are man and wife before the world. Footnote. The editor does not hold himself responsible for Father Francisco's views on ecclesiastical marriage law. End footnote. Here Juana jumped to her feet, and even in that light Leonard could see that her breast was heaving and her eyes shone with anger. "'It is intolerable that I should be forced to listen to such falsehoods,' she said. "'And if you ever repeat them in my hearing, Father Francisco, I will not speak to you again. I utterly repudiate this marriage. Before the ceremony began, Mr. Outram whispered to me to go through with the farce, and it was a farce. Had I thought otherwise, I should have taken the poison.' If there is any foundation for what the father says, I have been deceived and entrapped. Pardon, Signora, replied the priest, but you should not speak so angrily. The Signor Outram and I only did what we were forced to do. 
supposing that Father Francisco is right, which I do not believe, said Leonard with sarcasm. Do you think, Miss Rod, that such a sudden undertaking would be more to my liking than to yours? Believe me, had I wished to deceive and entrap you, I could not have done so without involving myself, since if the marriage is binding, it is binding on both parties, and even such a humble individual as I am does not take a wife on the faith of a five-minute acquaintance. To be frank, I undertook your rescue for purposes far other than those of matrimony. Might I ask what they were? replied Juana in a tone of equal acerbity. Certainly, Miss Rod, but first I must explain that I am no knight-errant. I am an almost penniless adventurer, and for urgent reasons of my own I seek to win fortune. Therefore, when the woman yonder and he pointed to Soa, who was sitting watching them just out of range of the firelight, came to me with a marvelous tale of a countless treasure of rubies, which she promised to reveal to me if I would undertake the little matter of your rescue, and when she even paid down a specimen stone of considerable value on account, having nothing better to do and nowhere to go, being in short desperate, I consented. Indeed, I did more. I took the precaution of reducing the matter to writing, I being one contracting party, and Soa acting on her own behalf, and as your attorney, being the other. I have not the least idea to what you allude, nor did I ever give Soa any authority to sign documents on my behalf. But may I see this writing? Certainly. Leonard answered, and rising he went to the baggage, whence he returned presently with a lantern and the prayer book. Juana placed the lantern beside her and opened the book. The first thing that she saw was a name on the flyleaf, Jane Beach, and beneath it this inscription, which had evidently been written by someone in a great hurry, To Dearest Leonard from Jane, 23rd January. Turn it over, he said hastily. The document is on the other side. She was not slow to note both the writing and the confusion which her perusal of it caused him. Who was Jane Beach, she wondered, and why did she call Mr. Outram dearest Leonard? In a moment, so strange are the hearts of women, Juana felt herself much prepossessed against her, whoever she might be, but she turned the leaf and read the agreement. It was a pretty sight to see her bending over the cramped writing in the circle of the lantern light, but when at length she had finished and looked up, there was a smile upon her lovely face, which had more of scorn in it than was pleasant. "'Come hither, Soa,' she said, "'and tell me what all this nonsense means about rubies and the people of the mist.' "'Shepherdess,' answered Soa, squatting down on the ground before her, "'it is not nonsense. The language which I taught you when you were little is that of this people.' It is a true tale, though hitherto I have hid it from you and your father Mavum, lest Mavum should seek to win the precious stones and come to his death through them. Listen, shepherdess. And she repeated the outlines of the story with which she had already made Leonard acquainted, ending thus. I told this tale to the white man because I saw that he was greedy after the fashion of his race, and my strait was desperate. 
For this reason I bribed him with the red stone and with the promise that I would lead him to the land of the people of the mist. For had I not done so, he would never have used his wit or put out his strength to rescue you from the yellow devil. Therefore it was also that I marked this paper on your behalf and my own, knowing well that I had no right to speak for you, and that by and by you could refuse to abide by it, though I am bound. Frank, at any rate, said Leonard to himself, what an attorney the old lady would have made. Say, Soa, asked Juana, to succeed in the search for these stones, is it necessary that I should act a part among your people? I can see no other way, she answered. But what of that? You are free, and what I promised on your behalf is nothing. Let the white man go without his reward. It will save him a long journey. Attorney, murmured Leonard in admiration. She ought to be attorney general. Wow, the wicked old cheat, put in Otter. If I had my way, I would break her neck, though she is so clever with the big gun. Juana took no notice of these asides. For the moment, she remained in thought, then looked up smiling. Really, she said, this is a capital legal document. But, oh, Mr. Outram, why did you dispel my illusions? You see, I have been making up such a romantic story out of this adventure. You were the knight-errant, and I was the Christian maiden in the hands of the ogre, and when you heard of it, you buckled on your armor and started to the rescue. And now you bring me down to the nineteenth century with a run. It is not knight-errantry, but a commercial transaction. I am in difficulty, but by playing a certain undefined part, you believe that I shall be able to help you secure treasure. Therefore, you agree to undertake the risk. I am ignorant of what I am to do, for as yet nobody has explained it to me, but you need have no fear. I shall not repudiate, as Soa suggests, with so much candor. Certainly I shall try my best to help you in this business, if I can, for you have worked hard and endangered your life, Mr. Outram, and I am sure that you have earned your money, or rather the prospect of it. Really, it is all very amusing. And she laughed merrily. As for Leonard, he sat before her mad with secret wrath and burning with shame. What a fool he had been thus to expose himself to the shafts of this girl's tongue, this girl whose beauty was only equaled by her malice. He wished that his hand had withered before he wrote that accursed document. But now the only thing to do was face it out. I am glad you see me in my true light at last, Miss Rod, he said. It simplifies matters. I entered into that agreement because it seemed to give me a remote chance of attaining my end, which is money. It does not quite follow, however, that I should not have attempted your rescue had there been no agreement, but of course I cannot expect you to believe that. I assure you, Mr. Outram, that I am deeply obliged to you for your caution. It has lifted a great weight from my mind, for if in any way I can help you to obtain possession of the valuables of this people of the mist, 
I shall have paid off an obligation which at present crushes me. We shall have to start early tomorrow morning, so with your permission, I think that I will be turning in, said Leonard, springing up with singular alacrity. Juana watched him go with innocent eyes, and as he passed, she saw by the firelight that his face was like a thunderstorm. I have made him angry this time, she thought to herself, and I am glad of it. What business had he to rescue me for money? But he is a strange man, and I don't think that I quite understand him. I wonder who Jane Beach is. I suppose that she wants the money. Women generally do. Or at least they did in Durban. Then she spoke aloud. So I come here while I undress, and tell me again all about your meeting with Mr. Outram and what he said— forgetting nothing. You have put me to shame, Soa, with your talk, and I will never forgive you. Tell me also how I can help win the treasure of the people of the mist. Oh, my goodness. Well, that was a lot of adventure. And... Even better, at the end, we have the setup for the perfect romance. <laughs> I have to say, hearing Juana's thoughts about, oh, well, yeah, you rescued me, and whoa, he looks just like the man of my dreams. But then thinking, well, I don't know if I care to be rescued, and I don't know if I care to have had to go through that with that farce of a marriage. And, and I'm just like, wow, really, this is where you're going with that. You're not just so relieved you didn't have to kill yourself or suffer a fate worse than death. And I'm thinking, that just doesn't seem right. And then Leonard seemed a little bit more realistic to me, except for the fact, of course, he had that damning document which showed he was just a man who wanted rubies. So we're all at cross purposes. And I would say the very weakest point, the plot hole through which you can drive a semi-truck is this whole idea that I said you're married, says Francisco. So guess what? You're married, whether you had the intention of it, whether it was part of this plot, no matter what. I like the, oh, it doesn't matter if neither of you is Catholic. It still counts. And I'm just going, okay, really? Because... I happen to be positive it's this very sort of situation that made the rules never be like that. Or if they were, they were being applied by some idiot priest. And that's one of the things I really loved about the footnote from the author saying, I am not taking any claim for this guy. So he's basically admitting it's a weak spot. We're going to go based on this guy's feelings and his determination, and then everybody's so mad at each other, they just can't stand it. I felt like for a little while I was reading one of those books where, you know, it's the bodice ripper sort where she's hanging in the strong man's arms and with a top that's barely holding everything in. Somehow I didn't really expect that from H. Ryder Haggard. <laughs> But it does set up some great conversation, and it sets up some battles of wits and struggles with one's own true feelings. So you really get the full meaning of romance. You're going after the rubies. You've rescued her from the slavers. Just every way you can look at romance 
we've got it here in the heart of Africa, etc. So I hope everybody else is enjoying this as much as I am, because it's just going to get better. It just keeps going. We're only about 35 or 40% of the way through the book, so we have a lot of adventure left. Now, in other news, let's see. Scott and I at A Good Story is Hard to Find have got an episode that will go up on Thursday, which will probably be right around the time when this does, a day or two later, probably. And there we talk about one of our family's very favorite movies, a Chinese movie called Shower, about a family who has a bathhouse in Beijing, which makes it sound, now that I hear myself saying that out loud, unbelievably adorable. And it is not unbelievably adorable. It's just wonderful. So you can hear us talk all about it there if you want. And... That's all the news I have. It is wonderful summer weather here. Well, it was, now that I think about it. I look out this window and there's a glorious tree with leaves that are darker than that bright spring green of the first leaves. And yet the temperature dipped down into freezing weather last night. So it's kind of chilly today, but it will speedily get back up to that summertime feeling weather just in time for Easter. So I'm enjoying that quite a lot. And other than that, we are taking dance lessons. We're now doing the Latin dances in the ballroom stuff, the cha-cha and the tango, and also the waltz, which is not Latin at all, but it's certainly very difficult to do if you're a lady and you're trying to follow the gentleman who has just been taught the regular waltz and the box waltz and they're encouraged to just mix it up any old way they want and you don't know if you're going backwards if you're going forwards it's a really good exercise actually in just paying attention to what the guy's doing and getting over any tendency you may have to try to predict where you're going yeah tom and i've been practicing that a lot (laughs) and i'm getting better at it but boy it is a toughie When everything's going great, it's kind of boring to tell people stories about it. Yeah, everything's great. I hope everything's great with you, no matter what your weather's like, no matter what you're doing. And as always, I really appreciate you giving me some of your time so I could read this story to you. I know I would never have read this one out loud, and I am having the best time. (laughs) So thank you very much. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.